I'm James Hahn II. And I'm Mark LaCour. And you're listening to This Week in Oil and Gas. This is the show for busy oil pros who want to quickly keep their finger on the pulse of the industry. Episode number 14. Welcome in, Mr. LaCour. Yeah, good to be here, James. You know, we both survived the flood of 2015 in Houston, so it's good that we'll be able to get on the show. Yeah, it is flooding down in Texas, as, as SRV saying, and I always get on a big Stevie Ray Vaughan kick every time. And I'm going to throw it in the show notes. I found a really awesome thing with him and Albert King just jamming for an hour and a half. And you have a pretty good picture to share. Yeah, I got a picture of my Labrador Retriever enjoying my flooded backyard, which never has happened before. It looks like she's in a lake and she's actually just in my backyard. Yeah, so um, I was glad I lived on the second floor, but of course, there's a lot of people still suffering. There was actually a tornado touchdown the day before the floods, not too far from my house. So anybody with some extra change might want to um, uh, actually know. I know of a couple different links we can throw in the show notes where people can go and uh, and give some money to the victims who are still trying to figure out what to do as far as where to sleep. Um, so segue into actually, I forgot this part. I am James Hahn II from Tribe Rocket, triberocket.com. We are brand architects for next generation oil field leaders. And uh, let me let me follow that up by saying we are not marketers, Mark. <laughs> we are sales. We know you're not marketers. <laughs> we are sales guys who are damn good at marketing. What about yep. you, Mark? Uh, modalpoint.com. We are the oil and gas sales experts. All right. And you are the experts in, in research and all things in oil and gas worldwide. So let's kick things off with Venezuela and Russia's Rosnet <laughs> uh, Neft agree to $14 billion oil deal. Yeah, so um, there, there's a bunch of things going on that's not talked about in this article that's all related. So you've probably heard us talk in the past how Venezuela's government is going to crumble because of these low crude prices. Um, Venezuela actually is in such bad shape that they're trading crude for rice and beans to feed their people. So um, they have, they're sitting on some pretty large reservoirs. Quite honestly, they, since they nationalized the oil fields, they do not have the talent to get that oil out of the ground. Um, because they burned uh, companies like Exxon and Chevron, those nobody's going to help them anymore. And so um, what's going on is, and this is something that's not talked about in this article, but China has also brokered deals with Venezuela. China has a need to buy Venezuela's crude, anybody's crude. China's brokered deals with Brazil and Mexico and, and anybody they can. Well, Russia depends on China to buy their crude to fuel their economy. Oh my so goodness. Russia's effort to go in and invest some money in Venezuela so that when the Venezuela crude is sold to the Chinese, Russians can still make money on it. Wow, that is uh, quite a big chess game they're playing. Yeah, and, and you know, most of the world don't understand doesn't understand the geopolitical um, um, backstory that's running this. Yeah, it's it's in, it's incredible and uh in, it will be interesting to watch unfold, but we must move over to the Northwest Territories where they apparently found a couple hundred billion barrels of oil. Yeah, so this is another shell and I've been, I've been coaching this shell shale, shale, shale. in uh in in um in Canada. And this is a large um, recoverable um reserve of very good uh, natural gas and, and some heavy crude. Now, they need to do a little bit more work to figure out exactly how much of it's recoverable. But man, if you got 200 billion, that's with a B, barrels, and you can only recover 10%, that's still a lot. Wow. And in in real terms, as far as time time wise, how long is that? If you even get 10%, what's that look like? Yeah, so nobody's going to really start production here because of low crude prices. They're going to look at uh, probably starting production the end of next year, 2016, would be my educated guess. You know, We expect the price of crude to get back to 70 or $75 by mid-2016. 
uh, next year, mid 2016. So, um, you know, to, to pull out 20 million barrels, it depends on how many holes they want to punch in the ground. But, you know, they could do that realistically in the next eight, eight or 10 years. And how long in, in with the amount of crude that we that they get out of there, how much how much consumption in, in, in time period do you think? Well, so if we there's no changes in technology as far as recovering that crude, which you and I both know that every year there's new technologies that are brought to the market to help recover even more crude. Um, maybe our listeners don't know this, but we've, you know, up until just recently before hydraulic fracking, we only removed about 5% of the crude oil in the re- reserves in the world. Mm-hmm. With hydraulic fracking, we're able to go back and get about 15%. Well, if you do the math, 5 plus 15 is 20. So even when we're finished hydraulic fracking, with 80% of the oil is still in the ground. And, and I, I believe, as in most experts, that in the next, in the upcoming years, more technologies will be brought online to recover that remaining crude. Um, so, but if, if no new technologies are, are added to this, you're looking at probably a, almost 80 years worth of production. Nice, nice, 80. That's a good number. Well, this is a really good segue into our sec, into our uh, next story, which is Chesapeake's enormous refracking potential, which is interesting to me because I used to talk to small independents who were going out there with a couple guys in a rig doing a bunch of reentry work all around Texas. So um, is this is this just is this not just, but is it a is it a really complicated or a, a new application of a reentry? No, it's um the technology, the 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 process has been thought of for a while. We actually talked about this in one of our past shows, how the stimulation of the existing wells is gonna be really big this year. And that's exactly what this is. Right. This is going back to existing wells and fracking them, or in some cases refracking them, to stimulate the well to get more production out of a well that's had declining production. So on paper, um, this has been around for, for quite a while. Nobody had to do it when oil was 70 75 80 $100 a barrel. Right. But now with these low crude prices, it makes more economic sense to go back and uh, increase production out of an existing well than to spend the money to, to drill a new well. Right. And back to your point on the last story, one of the analogies that really helped sort of solidify this in my mind uh, was from a man, Reed Barrett, who is not with Drilling Info anymore and with Expert System. But um, it's it's like if you take a paintbrush and dip it into paint, right? Because when you just have a very – when you don't understand how the oil gets out of the ground, you think that it's just a straw and it just gets sucked out of the ground in a pool. And then you find out that that's not the case. But then you are shocked that if you got 30% out of uh, out of 100% on return, you'd be doing backflips and you're going, well, why, how is that? And, but that whole analogy of the paintbrush, cause you know, you dip the paintbrush into the paint, you don't get it all out. And, uh, and, and so I guess this is, this is a, a good example of them just kind of dipping the brush back in the paint. Yeah. It, you know, if, if you want to try to visualize it, conventional reservoir drilling is actually tapping into that pool of oil under the ground with a straw. Um, that's how we've done it forever. Uh, the fracking is actually going to the source rock. So this is the oldest crude uh, that that's the oil that's on the planet and actually going to the source rock and, and um, by using technology, having that source rock uh, give up the oil. So literally, like you said, like you dip, dip in a paintbrush in a bucket of paint. Right, right. So we got some new stuff going on in that front um, out in North Carolina. And I've sort of uh, just been tracking this a little bit because there was a little there was a little pushback obviously and and we apparently have movement but not quite as fast so fracking off to a slow start in North Carolina yeah it's just bad timing i, I mean you know they had some uh, legislative hurdles you had the environmentalists get involved and by the time that the legislation got approved so that people could actually apply for permits 
and go drill responsibly and safely, well, the, bo the bottom of the crude market fell out. So now it's not economically viable. I promise you, by next year, when crude prices get back to $70, dollars a barrel, uh, North Carolina will come online as one of the producing frack states. Right. Um, but they're going to be they're going to be slow um, to develop the fields because they're late to the game. Right. And so in the first sen uh, sentence, first first uh, word here, wildcatters, is that who's out there right now? Just guys saying, oh, I think it's out here. Uh, drill here. Yeah, there, there's a few people that that are betting that they can um, get ahead of the curve. And for the people that don't know, a wildcat is usually a small, independent uh, drilling operator who has one or two rigs and a couple of people. And they go out and they try to spud a well first uh, and, and be in production first. It's it's sort of like playing poker. Um, it's, there's a lot of risk involved and there's there's a lot of reward if it's done right. Have you ever heard the story about the woman who had the dream where oil was? Have you ever heard that? No. Yeah, so this is a story I've heard from Alan Gilmer a couple times, and I really need to get the specifics from him. But this, this is back, I don't even know, you know, 80 years ago or something like that, where, she, where she, her husband died, and then she had a dream that, that he told her where there was oil basically in her backyard, right? And she went to all these different drillers saying, you know, I had this dream and my husband told me right here. And and they everyone was like, this woman's crazy. There's right. there's not a chance. There's not any oil out here. We don't have any proof of anything. And she actually took the people out there and and told them a 100 foot by a 100 foot area and said right here. And they drilled and it ended up being... Uh, that she finally got uh, someone to take her seriously, and it ended up being one of the major discovery wells in one of the big early fields in Texas. Wow. Uh, bet a lot of geophysicists out there don't approve of that method. <laughs> um, and I bet you couldn't really uh, do that these days with um, with the amount of stuff that we've we've been able to get out of the ground. But like you said, there's a lot more in it. And we're moving on to Devon CEO John Richels recounts how company changed course at TU Friends of Finance downtown. Yeah, so I, I love Devon Energy. Um, Devon almost has a crystal ball, I think. So Devon was involved in a lot of stuff years ago. Deepwater, Ultra Deepwater, uh, 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 Mozambique. Um, they're on the shelf in the Gulf of Mexico. And right, I mean, literally right before the BP Macondo disaster, they made a decision as a company to divestify all of that and concentrate on what they're good on, which is onshore in the U.S. and Canada. So they sold all their assets with their, when they were at the peak dollar value. Then Whoa. the PP Macondo disaster happened. I mean, literally a week or two after they reformat their business. <laughs> so, yeah, I mean, it's just, it's, I mean, it's, it's, you know, part of it, you might want to say it's good luck, but it's also hats off to them for looking at what's going on in their business and having the courage to say, we need to change stuff. And they did. And um, they're, they're a very strong uh, player in the frack fields. They know what they're doing and they can get oil out of the ground better than almost anybody else, environmentally responsibly, safely, and profitably. And so this is just a little article about the CEO talking to um, the, uh, a, a private group uh, about how they were able to pull that off and how it, it, it's enabled Devon to take care of their employees and keep everybody working, everybody happy. Right, right. And I, I, I one line down here uh, jumps out at me. $70 on the way up felt great, he joked to the crowd, then projecting, we'll see the price coming up to 90 to 100. We never budgeted at 90 to 100 anyway. We think that we thought we didn't think that was sustainable. Yeah, and everybody in the industry knows that's not sustainable. I, I know, I actually know the financial models of some of the largest super majors in the world, and those financial models are usually built around thirty-five to thirty-eight dollars a barrel break-even. 
So if, you, if you're developing a field that's above that, you have to get executive approval. I got to say, though, uh, being in the industry five years and and having tran- transitioned from from the mortgage boom and bust, there there was there was a little bit of uh, hopeless optimism, if you will, that that sort of it seemed that some people weren't realistic in that regard. Oh, yeah, it happens every time. So I remember it was at 82 when we had the, the bust. And everybody swore they would never get caught up in this again. They'd make sure they're diversified. They have strong financial models. And then we get to what happened a few years ago. Everybody, all that, you know, the bad players, all that went out the door. They thought it would last forever. You know, people that are in the industry know that it's a commodity, know that the pendulum swings. Right. Um, this is, we will have other busts. I promise you. It's a global commodity and supply and demand are not balanced. Yeah. Well, um, speaking of supply and demand and getting things where they need to go and then refining them and making them into new products. Occidental Petroleum planning ahead with midstream and downstream expansions. Yeah, I love Oxy. They're they're one of the strongest players yeah, in the they're good. frack field. Um, they know what they're doing. So imagine if you're producing crude and natural gas you know, effectively, profitably, where else can you spend your money and make even more money from the industry? Well, why don't you build your own pipelines so right. you don't have to pay someone else to move your crude natural gas around? And then why don't you build your own refineries? In fact, Instead of a refinery, why don't you look at converting natural gas to ethylene, which is then converted to plastics, which is called an ethylene cracker. And this way you own the complete value chain. That's what Oxy's doing right now. So they're becoming a super major. No, no, no. They're not becoming a super major. Okay. Um, well, you know what, James? You know what? You actually, told me that was the definition like yeah, last show so or two shows ago. Actually, yes, they are going down that road to have um, upstream, midstream, and downstream. So you're right. If they get this finished, they will fit the definition of, of a super major. Nice. So they're partnering with Mexichem, which I, which I think is a great idea because they spread the financial risk of the ethylene cracker, which they're actually building right here in Texas. Um, but you know, their ability to export ethylene to the rest of the world because we can make it so cheap here is, is just, I mean, how genius is that? They, they produce the raw product, which is the natural gas and crude. They move it in their own infrastructure. They turn it to plastics or, or ethylene, which, which you can convert to polyethylene. And then they sell it in the global market at a very healthy profit. And, and, and so they talk a little bit here about the, uh, let's say, Ingleside Energy Center. What's that all about? That's just that's where this ethylene cracker is going to go, and you're looking at you know close to a billion dollars when it's all said and done of investment. So it's not just you know three guys and a couple of tanks. This is a large this is a large construction project that will be state of the art because it's all brand new. Nice. Okay, so we touched on midstream and downstream. We got to talk MNA as well, and and I wanted to bring this one up because um, we've been talking a lot about how MNA is 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 the thing this year and moving forward with all of these over leveraged companies but i have seen some some talk some chatter out there about how MA is just sluggish or not getting started so actually that's that's what this headline says um from from a man i definitely uh, respect uh here in the in forbes but global oil and gas sector MA activity remains sluggish what's the backstory so the backstory is that it is sluggish, but there's a reason. So you have a lot of good companies with a lot of cash waiting to invest, waiting to buy assets, waiting to buy companies. Now, if you're one of those people, one of the good people, you want to wait till it hits rock bottom. You don't want to uh, buy stuff that uh, could be devalued 2 or 3% more in the next month or six months or whatever. So it's a matter of, of the investment community. Do they believe everything's hit rock bottom? And so a lot of people right now say no, that has not hit rock bottom. We actually think it has. Um, please nobody invest on what we have to say here. We're not certified, you know, stock analysts or anything. 
Um, but there's also some evidence out there in the world that some other major players think we've hit rock bottom. You know, I promise you Shell would not have bought BG until they thought BG was devalued the most. Right. So, um, you know, people are being cautious right now. And, and you're seeing a lot of private equity money poised. Now, I worry a little bit about that. Um, private equity, in a nutshell, basically is looking at a quick turnaround. I invest $100 million, I spend some time, and in the next you know, three to seven years, I sell that for $500 million, I make a profit. Right. It doesn't work in oil and gas. We're much longer term. And a lot of the bad players, especially in the frack fields, were funded by private equity. Yeah. So it's be interesting to see how this all shakes out. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, so so then I guess the analogy that that was coming to mind for me is just like anybody looking to buy a house a few years ago. They're just kind of going, All right. Um, I don't think it's I don't think it's to the bottom yet. You know, this the this bubble uh it burst, but I, I think I can get another fifty fifty grand out of this. So you just take that number and multiply it by just add a few hundred zeros to it or whatever it is, and then you have what's going on here. Yeah, and that's exactly right. And we still are predicting that in the next twenty four months will be a record in MA activity in oil and gas. There's just too many devalued assets out there. And there's too many people sitting on a boatload of cash. Yeah. Well, thinking, uh, talking, speaking of, <laughs> speaking of sitting on boats, this is an interesting story and a remarkably positive one from the American, uh, I'm sorry, from the Associated Press, once vilified BP now getting credit for Gulf tourism boom. Yeah. So BP did the right thing, right? They were the operator. And, and there was a, there's, you know, it's a subject for another show about what actually happened in Macondo because 99% of people have no idea what really happened. There was some copability all the way around, but BP was the operator. So BP spent millions of dollars cleaning everything up, and everything is clean. I mean, the oil's not there anymore. It's gone. Um, they spent millions of dollars um, making sure that people's incomes who were impacted by this were covered. They spent millions of dollars to attract tourism back. They spent millions of dollars in environmental testing to make sure everything's good, and and, and it worked. I mean, just bottom line, it worked. The, the Gulf Coast is rocking and rolling. You know, the shrimp and the oysters are coming out. They're all clean. Seafood's crazy. Tourists are back. Um, it's it's and and BP did the right thing. Yeah, and if you watch there, there's actually uh, I gotta say there's a video here too, and and I'm always a big fan of, of seeing seeing not only the pictures but the the live action. And you know the the journalist says you know once you know covered in black oil now look at these people in the clean water and it's it it, it looks like nothing ever happened. Yeah, and, and you can't find traces of the crude oil. So it's just like nothing ever happened. Um, it was an environmental catastrophe, but folks, you can fix environmental catastrophes. Absolutely. Uh, it's not pretty, it's not cheap, but it can be done. And we did it, or I should say BP did it. Absolutely. And uh, speaking of disasters, <laughs> we have our weekly onion, which came out today. GM announces plans to recall driverless car by 2021, um, which hits, hits close to home for me, being that I'm from Michigan. And uh, you know, it's just really funny to me that they, they plan, oh, what is it here? We've begun to test several autonomous prototypes with life-threatening mechanical flaws. And in just six short years, we're confident that you'll see GM driverless cars in nearly every tragic newspaper article and television news segment in America. I don't doubt that is true. Uh, on to our events, AAPG. Tell me about it, Mark. So um, uh, this is the uh, annual... Um Society for uh, Geology event. I can't actually remember what Society for Sedimentary Geology. Um, I should, but I don't remember. <laughs> right. Um, but this is a really good event if if you're into the geosciences. This is, um, you know, the, the shakers and the, and the the scientists and the the people that are looking at new technologies all in one place at one time. 
Yeah, and that's it's going on in Denver, Colorado, at the Colorado Convention Center from May 31st to June uh, to, <laughs> to, to June 3rd. Um, and so we will get that link in the show notes for everybody who's interested in that. And we have one uh, coming up here in our backyard. Tell us about it. Yeah, the Houston Energy Breakfast. It's um, I love this event. I you know I will be there as a moderator. Um, it's um, this is some serious horsepower from the oil and gas world. Some high-ranking executives talking about real business issues. Um, if you are in the oil and gas industry or you're thinking about getting the oil and gas industry, you need to go to this. You, you get to hear it f- literally from the the business leader's mouth on what's really going on. They, they don't sugarcoat anything here. Um, it's 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 a great event. Uh, it's a little bit early. You got to put a suit on, but it's well worth it. Absolutely, and I got to give a shout out to my man, RT Dukes. Who, if uh, if anybody's ever listened to our other show, the Oil and Gas Digital Marketing Show, uh, he's been on that. He was one of our first ten guests, and he will be there speaking as well. And then shout out to Diana Swift, who is is architecting this whole monstrosity. And so I'm going to put if uh, if you don't remember Houston Energy Breakfast, you can go to trybrocket.com forward slash breakfast trybracket.com forward slash breakfast. And uh, we will have that there. I'm looking down at my timer and we are uh, just over 20 minutes. So as anything else from you, Mr. LaCour? Nope, we're good. So uh, folks do great work, pay it forward, and we will see you next time. Go find some grease guys. But there was an alligator in your neighborhood. Oh, there's a bunch of alligators. Texas has actually has a lot of alligators.